Amen. First Samuel is a transitional book. It's a transitional book because First Samuel takes us from the period of the judges, 350 years of just abject wickedness and evil and sinfulness. And it brings us into the period of the united monarchy for Israel. It brings us into the period of, of the kings of Israel. And it introduces us to, to King Saul first and then ultimately King David. And it introduces characters like Jonathan and David's mighty men. And so there's some amazing stories in the book of 1 Samuel. Amazing people, amazing men in the book of 1 Samuel. But ultimately at its core, 1 Samuel isn't a book about any of them. 1 Samuel is foundationally, first and foremost, a book about God. It's a book about God, and as such, it reveals something to us about him. And that's going to be our goal this semester, this year, as we study this book, is not to get caught up in the characters, not to say, wow, look how amazing these men, these women are, but it's going to be to say, what are we learning about God from the stories that we're reading through the, the accounts that we find in 1 Samuel. And that's true for us this morning as well. This morning we come to 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through chapter 2, verses 11. And we may ask ourselves the question, who's the main character of this section? And how would you respond to that? Leaders, you can't cheat. We might say Hannah, right? Wrong. Hannah's not the main character of this. God is. And so as we look at chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 11, we're going to see, yes, Hannah has an amazing example of faith, and she demonstrates some pretty phenomenal ways that we can respond to pain and suffering and trials in our lives, and that's what we're going to focus on this morning. But the only reason that Hannah is able to respond the way she does is because of what she believes to be true about God. And so we don't, we don't want to walk out of here in awe of Hannah saying, wow, we need to be little Hannahs, because number one, that's not very manly, is it? But number two, that misses the point completely. The point of, of this story in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2 is not to glorify Hannah, it's to glorify the God that Hannah believed in. And so that's what we want to do as we walk through this text. We want to look at Hannah's faith, but we want to look at the God who Hannah believed in, who Hannah trusted, who Hannah turned to, to be able to understand how we should respond in pain and suffering and trials. And so if you're here this morning and you have an unbelieving spouse or you have unbelieving children, or you have a marriage that's on life support, or maybe you're here this morning and, and you've lost a job, or you have bills that are mounting and you're not quite sure how you're going to be able to pay them, or you're here this morning and you've gone to the doctor recently and the doctor's concerned about something and you're waiting on test results, or maybe the results are back and the doctor said, look, it's not good, or maybe you're here this morning and, and just at some point in your life you've walked through a time of, of pretty intense pain and suffering and sorrow and anguish and anxiety, which I think covers all of the rest of us in this room, then this book and this chapter that we're about to look at this morning is for you. Because as we look at Hannah and in a time of deep turmoil and stress and anxiety and anguish in her life, as we look at what she did and what she believed about God, it's going to translate for us because the same God that Hannah served is the same God that we serve. And so what she knew to be true about him is what we know to be true about him. And so as we watch what she did, we can emulate her example, not because she's so wonderful. She is. She's a great woman of faith. But more importantly, because the God that she served is a faithful, immutable, unchangeable God who's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. If you're not there already, make your way over to 1 Samuel chapter 1 for us. 
1 Samuel chapter 1, we're not going to read through the whole thing. We'll summarize some things, read a, a couple of other parts. But as we start 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2, we're introduced to the main characters of this book. Or excuse me, not of the whole book, of, of this, this section, this, this two chapters that we're looking at here this morning. And these main characters, number one, we have Elkanah. And Elkanah was a man, it says, was from a, a particular geographic region. We're not sure exactly where that was. But more importantly, 1 Chronicles chapter 6 tells us that Elkanah was a Levite. He was a member of the Levitical household, which means Elkanah was a priest. And Elkanah had, it says, two wives. The first wife that he had was Hannah. And he took Hannah as his wife, and things were going well until it was discovered that Hannah was barren. She couldn't have any children. She was infertile. And during this time in this culture, to not have children, to be unable to reproduce, to be unable to make sure that your line would continue was a mark of intense disgrace and shame on a family. And so Elkanah goes out and he takes a second wife, Penina, who it says in the text in, in verse 2, had many children. And so we see this man, Elkanah, who is a member of the Levitical household. He was a priest of God and he has two wives. And our red flags go up and we say, well, wait a minute, isn't polygamy wrong? Yes, polygamy is wrong. Remember what Pastor Mike said for us as we, we talked about it last week, as we all gathered together, that the Bible is a book of that is, that is true, but some of the things that are recorded in the Bible are accurate representations of things that aren't things that we should follow after. This is an example of that. God's not condoning polygamy. This is just what was actually going on. This was a mark of the culture, mark of the time. This is what they did. Is it wrong? Yes. Why? Because God's design for marriage has always been one man, one wife, period, end of story. But Elkanah had two wives. Why? Because Hannah was infertile, so he took the second wife, Penina conflict begins to arise. Look at verse 3. We'll read down through verse 8 together. It says, now this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the tabernacle was, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not worth more than 10 sons to you? And so we see this conflict arise because Hannah is unable to bear children which again during this time would have been an unbearable mark of shame and disgrace. And in fact, in the text, it says that Hannah was deeply distressed is what we'll come to in a moment. But as Hannah is unable to bear children, Elkanah, her husband, develops a, spe a special affection for her. He feels for her sorrow, for her hurt, for her need, and he's taken on the second wife. Perhaps he feels even a little bit of, of guilt over having this other wife and the fact that she has all these children and so he gives her a double portion as they go up and being one of the Levitical members of, of the priesthood, he's able to take some of the offering and bring it back to feed his family. And he gives some to Penina and her children, but then he takes a double portion, a special portion, and gives it to Hannah. Well, Penina doesn't like that very much. And so Penina goes after Hannah as any rival would. And so she goes after Hannah, and you can imagine some of the jabs that she would have taken at Hannah. Hey, Hannah, will you have one of your kids Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. I forgot you don't have any. 
hey, Hannah, would you like to come sit by me and all of my children over here so that you're not alone down at the other end of the table? Hey, Hannah, Elkin and I wanted to go out and, and get some good alone time together. Would you mind babysitting all of my children for me since, you know, you're free and don't have any kids of your own? Who knows what it was actually like in reality, but it says in the text that she would provoke Hannah. She would mock her relentlessly. She would dig those jabs and those sword thrusts verbally into Hannah so that Hannah would feel the, the bitterness of the disgrace and the shame of not being able to have children herself. In fact, at, at one point on one of these visits, we pick up in verse 9, it, it reaches a, a tipping point for Hannah. It says, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. The text there, she was deeply distressed. It, it, it's a, a word that means she was bitter in soul. It's the same word that's actually used of, of Job when Job is suffering so intensely after he's lost his family, his possessions, his children, he's lost everything, his status, his reputation, his wealth, everything is gone. And his wife looks at him and says, curse God and die. And then his miserable friends come along and offer their advice and counsel. And Job begins to lament the day that he was born. He says, I, I wish that I had never been born. The text in Job says that he was bitter in soul. It's that same level of despair, that same level of, God, why is this happening? Why is, am I going through this? And so it says, deeply distressed, she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. What was Hannah's response to her pain? Her response to her pain was to turn to the Lord in prayer. See, Hannah didn't have 2 Corinthians 1, which we have right now, which says that God is the God of all what? comfort, who comforts us in every affliction. She didn't have the Apostle Paul's words, obviously, but she still knew God to be the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions. And so in the midst of her anguish, in the midst of her turmoil, in the midst of her intense and emotional pain, what does she do? She turns to the Lord in prayer. We have 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We know the same God that Hannah knew, and we know him very specifically to be the God who has revealed himself to be the God of all comfort, the God who comforts us in all of our afflictions. And so we need to have the same response that Hannah had. In fact, write point one down this way. We need to pray in pain. We need to pray in pain because the God that Hannah served is the same God that we serve and that God is the God who comforts his children in every affliction. Question, who did Hannah know God to be? We don't know for sure. We don't have that recorded for us. It doesn't say and this is who Hannah conceived of God as. But we can imagine being a member of the Levitical household through marriage to, to Elkanah that in going up to the, the tabernacle yearly to worship and, and attending the feast, she would have had a, a base knowledge of God. And that would have probably included the fact that God is the creator, right? That he created everything. Probably would have also included the stories of maybe Abraham and, and Sarah. Sarah, remember, was barren until God finally blessed her with a child in old age? Or how about Isaac and Rebekah? Rebekah was barren until the Lord blessed Rebekah with twins. Would she have known the stories of the Exodus? Yeah, she would have. How God raised up Moses to, to be a deliverer for his people. Remember that 
In the book of Exodus, it says that God heard the cries of the nation of Israel as they were in bondage, as they were in slavery, as they were being mistreated in Egypt. God responded to their pain, responded to their suffering, raised up Moses to go and be a deliverer. Would Hannah have known the stories of God's sustaining his people through the wilderness? Yeah, she would have. Would Hannah have known the stories of the conquest of Canaan? Would she have known the story of Jericho? Yes, she would have known the story of Jericho. So Hannah could conceive of God as a God who cares for his people, right? That's not beyond the the, the realm of possibility. And so as Hannah is in the midst of this deep pain, this agony, this anguish of her soul, she turns to the Lord in prayer. It's a good example for us to follow, but we can even one-up Hannah by going to Luke chapter 22, verse 44. Luke chapter 22 is records for us, at least in one of the sections, Jesus, after the upper room discourse, goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, right, with his disciples. And as he enters into the Garden of Gethsemane, he turns to his disciples and he says, pray with me. And he actually says to them, pray that you will not enter into temptation. And he withdraws from them for, for a distance and he goes off by himself to pray to the Lord. And, and Luke records for us that as he prayed to the Lord, it says this, it says, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And so as the anguish of, the, of our Lord and Savior increased, as his level of pain and suffering increased, as he anticipated the cross, as he anticipated what lay before him, what was his response? He prayed more earnestly. If that's the model of our Savior, should that not be also our response when we find ourselves in pain and suffering and trials and tribulation? When we grieve over a loved one who doesn't know Christ, when we grieve over children, when we grieve over a broken relationship or losing our job or not knowing where we're going to get the money to be able to put food on our table, should we not follow the example that Hannah provides, that our Lord and Savior provides, and in the midst of our own pain and our own agony, pray even more earnestly? We have to pray in pain. But what does she pray? Again, pick up in verse 10. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow. In the midst of her prayer, she vows this vow to the Lord. And she says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction, the affliction, the pain of your servant, and remember me, and not forget your servant. Notice the language that she uses in this prayer. She addresses the Lord of hosts, the Lord of all the angel armies, the God who is more powerful than any other God there is. And then she refers to herself as a servant, as a household slave over and over again. If you will look upon the affliction of your servant, remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Hannah is praying to the Lord and she requests a child from him. Now, any child that Hannah would have had with Elkanah would have already been devoted to the Lord because he would have been a Levite. But Hannah takes this one step further and says, Lord, he will not only be a Levite, I'm going to make sure that I consecrate him and and devote him to you as a Nazarite. He's going to be a a particular class. He's going to be set apart and distinguished even from just the typical Levitical priesthood. And it says there, that's why it says that no razor shall touch his head. It was a symbol of the Nazarite vow One of the most famous Nazarites that we know of in the Old Testament is Samson. Samson was a Nazarite. And so Hannah vows this vow and she says, Lord, if you will give me a child, I will return him back to you. 
It's a pretty monumental prayer request, isn't it? We need to remember the time and, and the, the situation that Hannah was living in, that Elkanah and Hannah were living in. There was no fertility clinic for them to go to. There was no IVF that was available. There were no frozen embryos. This was a situation where if Hannah wanted a child, it was going to be God and God alone who was going to give her a child. And at this time, when a woman was barren, again, the shame, the stigma, the, the, the difficulty that that would have brought to her would have been overwhelming and, and, and paralyzing. But oftentimes, that, that was life. If you were a barren woman, that, that, that was your lot in life. But Hannah wasn't willing to settle for that. Notice her prayer is not, Lord, help me to accept what I can't change. That's not her prayer. Lord, help me to just accept the hand that I've been dealt and suffer well. That's not her prayer. What's her prayer? God, if you will give me a son, if you will give me a child, if you will do for me what everyone else says is impossible, what everyone else says will never happen, what my rival Penina mocks me for, Lord, if you will remove the source of my pain and my sorrow and my suffering Lord, if you will give me a child, I will return him to you. See, Hannah wasn't afraid to make big, bold, enormous requests to the Lord. She had faith that God was able to answer any request. Again, she hadn't heard Jesus in Matthew 7 say to the people, if you as earthly fathers know how to give what is good to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? Hannah hadn't heard that, but she believed that. She believed that to be true, that God would give good gifts to those who approached him, who asked him. And so she pleaded with the Lord. She asked of the Lord, Father, God, give me a son and I will return him to you. This brings us to point number two this morning. Write it down this way. Pray big prayers. When we are praying in pain, we need to make sure that we're not afraid to pray big prayers. Yes, we always pray big prayers with the understanding that as Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done. But nonetheless, we can ask big things of God. It's not wrong. It's, it's not selfish to do that. God delights in giving good things to his children. In fact, James would even say, you don't have because you don't ask or you ask with wrong motives. And so if we will come before the Lord and ask with right motives, if we will ask according to his will for his glory, there's nothing that we can't ask for. Now, understand, that's a big caveat in there to ask according to his will for his glory. We're not preaching a prosperity gospel here. This is not what this text is teaching us. We're not preaching a name it and claim it here. That's not what this text is teaching us. But what we're saying is we serve a God who's powerful, a God who's able to respond and to deliver us from the pain and sorrows and trials in our lives. So don't just pray, Lord, help me to suffer well. That's a fine prayer. But also pray, God, deliver me from my pain right now. If it be your will, remove this from me. Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, we need to pray more prayers that follow in, in accordance with this when he says, to him who is able to do what? 
far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Do you know what Paul just said there? God's able to do more than anything you could ask him to do. And so when you're asking for the salvation of your spouse, you're asking him for the salvation of your children. I've talked with some of you and you've said, man, I've, I've been praying for this for so long. Keep praying. Keep praying. The arm of the Lord is not too short that there's anyone beyond the reach of his salvation. He delights in giving good gifts to his children. His timing is not our timing. So don't grow discouraged in the midst of the pain and the suffering and the sorrow. I guarantee you this is not the first time that Hannah turned to the Lord and prayed for a child. Keep praying big prayers. Keep going to the Lord. Keep asking him to do far more abundantly beyond all you could ask or think and understand that the God that you serve is the God that Hannah served, the God who is able to do big things for us. So pray big things to him. I mean, consider what he did for for Sarah and Abraham. Sarah laughed when she found out that she was going to have a child. Why? Because she was well past childbearing age. That didn't stop God. Or consider Rebecca, a woman who was barren, and and then eventually it would be said of her that you have two nations in your womb. God is able to do far more above and beyond anything that we could ask. What's a resolution to her prayer? Well, Eli initially thinks that she's intoxicated. She says, no, 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 I'm not intoxicated, I'm praying. And Eli says, okay, well then go and may the Lord grant your request. And she returns to Elkanah and they go home and Eventually they conceive and she receives the child that the Lord had promised to her. And the text says that the Lord remembered Hannah. It's the same word that's used of Noah when Noah and his family were on the ark. And it says that the Lord remembered Noah and his family and caused the rain to stop and the floods to subside. It's a sign of him remembering and, and, and distributing his grace, his delivering grace upon his people. So he remembers Hannah and he gives her this child, Samuel, and eventually After weaning him, Hannah fulfills her vow, returns him to the Lord, gives him back to the Lord, and commits him to the service of the Lord at the tabernacle there in Shiloh. See, God had heard Hannah's plea. He had responded to Hannah's plea. And he does that for us sometimes. Some of us get this. We say, yeah, I do that. I, I pray in pain and I pray big prayers. And some of us have seen God respond in ways that are pretty amazing and pretty phenomenal. But the next question is, have you turned and praised him and thanked him for that? Or are we sometimes like my son Luke, who is just over a year and a half, and he's sleeping in a big bed now, and there's this about six-inch gap between the wall and the bed, and in the middle of the night, sometimes he falls down in that gap. And he can't get himself out, and It's also the middle of the night, and he has no idea what's going on. So what does he do? He cries. He cries out for help. He cries out for deliverance because he can't help himself. He's stuck. And so I'll come into his room and climb over the bumper in the bed and wedge myself back there and and lift him out. I'll free him from that position, and I'll put him, lay him back down on his bed. You know what he's never done after that? He's never looked at me and said, hey, thanks, Dad. I appreciate that. Thanks for your deliverance from that gap that I fell down into. I appreciate that. And he's two, so we can expect that. But how often are we like that? God responds to our prayers. He responds to our big prayers the way he did for Hannah. And we just go back to sleep, spiritually speaking. 
until we need him again. Hannah doesn't do that. Chapter two, my heart exalts the Lord. She's rejoicing in the Lord in this. He's responded. He's given her this child that she's longed for. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn, my strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice, God, in your salvation. This is salvation on a micro level. God has delivered her from the shame, the stigma, the disgrace of being a barren woman in this culture. There's none holy like the Lord, for there's none besides you. There's no rock like our God. Notice her theology in this prayer. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren is born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set them, he has set the world on them. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. And now she shifts the focus to the macro salvation. The salvation that's going to come through a deliverer yet to be revealed. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. In Luke chapter 2, Mary sings a song in response to finding out that she would give birth to Christ. The parallels between Mary's song and Hannah's song are striking, and there's purpose behind that. This king, this anointed one who she's anticipating here at the end of her prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2 is realized through the birth of the one that Mary was exalting and, and singing about in Luke chapter 2. But what's our point for us? Hannah knew that God was a God that was worthy of worship. Remember, we're focused on who God, Hannah knew God to be. She knew that he was a God that was worthy of worship and praise. And so when he responded to her prayer, that's exactly what she did. And that's what we need to do as well. Point three, finally this morning is this. Pray prayers of praise. Pray prayers of praise. Why? Because God is always worthy of our praise. He responded to Hannah's prayer and gave her a son. He's not always going to respond to our big prayers. Doesn't mean we give up. We keep praying. We keep praying. We keep praying. Remember the parable of the persistent widow? Continually going before the judge. We continually ask. We continually seek. We continually knock because we don't know when God will respond. But in the times even when he doesn't respond, when we're left in the trials and tribulations, can we remember 1 Peter 1.7? that says that even our trials and tribulations will one day be found to result in the praise and honor and glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God is always to be praised. We need to always be praying prayers of praise. And Hannah does that as she responds to what the Lord has done. So Hannah knew God to be a God of comfort, so she prayed in pain. She knew God to be a God who would respond to her prayers, a God who was able to do big things, a God who would give good gifts to his children. And so she prayed big prayers. And finally, she knew that God was a God who was worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. And so she worshiped him in response to how he responded to her prayer. 
So as we bring things to a close this morning, as you think about those trials, those, those sources of pain in your life, I want to encourage you to keep praying. Keep praying for your spouse, your children, your marriage. Keep praying for healing. Keep praying for, for God to provide for you what you're lacking. Keep praying in the midst of your pain. And I, I can't tell you when or if God is going to respond here. But much like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood before Nebuchadnezzar and the fiery furnace in their side view, and they said to him, O king, we don't need to respond to you because our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. And don't you think that as they were going to be thrown into the fiery furnace, those three men were praying to the Lord that he would deliver them from the flames? Our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, but he will deliver us from you, O king. As we look at our pain, our sorrow, our Nebuchadnezzars in our life, we need to look at it with that same level of faith and understand that we will pray big prayers, we will pray in pain, and we will always praise and worship our God because ultimately we will be delivered. I can't tell you that it's gonna be here. I can't tell you that he's gonna pull you out of your pain here and now, but one day he will for all of eternity and it will make what you're experiencing, what you're suffering here, according to the Apostle Paul, according to the word of God, look like light momentary affliction. Until that day comes, pray. Follow Hannah's example because we know the same God that Hannah knew. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for that truth. We thank you that you are unchangeable, that you are immutable, that we can read these stories in the Old Testament and be in awe that we worship and serve the same God, that we pray to the same God. Lord, this is a story of you giving a child to a woman who is barren. That's, that's amazing in and of itself. But when we zoom out even further to consider you're the God that parted the Red Sea, you're the God that spoke everything into existence. Is there anything too hard for you? Father, I pray for my brothers that are here this morning that are suffering right now, that are in pain, that they would be emboldened by this account, emboldened by 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2 here, to go to you in prayer, to ask big things of you because you are a God who will respond in big ways. Lord, I pray that you would comfort these brothers. And I pray that you would prompt them through your spirit to always be praying prayers of praise to you, always be worshiping you in the midst of the pain and suffering. And when the pain and suffering is relieved even more, Lord, let us shout for joy and exalt you and testify to your greatness and your honor and your glory. Lord, the greatest example of you delivering us from our pain is the cross of Jesus Christ. The gospel that you removed from us the pain, the shame, the stigma of our sin, our guilt, and our condemnation so that now we can exalt and rejoice and say, there's no condemnation anymore for those in Christ Jesus. And you've secured a future for us that will allow us to suffer faithfully here. Yes, always praying always pleading, but knowing that one day we will ultimately be free from the trial that we are walking through right now. Lord, we praise you. We give you the glory for that reality. Lord, thank you for this book, the Bible, that you've given to us, that you've revealed yourself to us in it. May we be faithful stewards to take this truth and apply it in our lives for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.